Today's text comes from Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 through 20. Uh, as you know, we are in a series on Nehemiah, and today is the last part of the foundation of the pre-building passages, narratives. Beginning chapter 3, you, if you've read ahead, it's not a secret, it's not a uh, spoiler, I mean, it's, it's all there for you to read and enjoy beforehand. Uh, if you've read ahead, you know that in chapter 3, the people actually start building. So you'll get, we'll talk about some of that in the coming weeks. But chapter 2 concludes sort of the pre-work that is done in Nehemiah or through Nehemiah as God prepares the people of God to do this work of rebuilding. And today we're going to look at the last part of that. So it's verses 11 through 20. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gate that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but, the, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins, with his gates burned. Come, let us build a wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king has spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we come now to your word, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word, through your spirit. Lord, we know that your spirit alone can make this word come alive and bear fruit in our life. It is not us, but your grace that makes our hearts soft and able to receive this word to bear fruit for your kingdom. So, Lord, help us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as mentioned, this is the last part of the sort of the, the uh, pre-building narrative. And there are just a couple of things that I want to show you. And I, I, I want to try to um, not, I want to give a shorter message today and then spend a little bit of time talking about the recent um, events in the U.S. Uh, and around the world and, and just reflect on that a little bit and pray uh, as, a, as a body. But, um, you know, I was, as I write, sometimes when I write, uh, I write like a 52-year-old, meaning I have these idioms and references that I feel like are probably outdated. So 
for example, I was writing this and I said, uh, this may sound like a broken record, but do you guys even know what a broken record is? No, honestly, honestly, how many of you, if I said, I may sound like a broken record, you can be young, say like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Anyone? Oh, you all know what a broken record is? Broken record is like back in the days, you know, the vinyl LP, and when it break, it would just skip and it will repeat itself. So when you keep saying the same thing over and over again, you use the idiom, I sound like a broken record. Like my kids will be like, I don't know what that means. Like, what's a broken record? But anyways, at the risk of, that's kind of like a side note, very not important to the message. But at the risk of sounding like a broken record, that's all I wanted to say that. I, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I do want to go back briefly and recap what we saw in the previous three messages. Now, this is really quickly. The first thing we see in Nehemiah is the, Sort of, I want you to be aware because if God is going to do something in your life and in our congregation, oftentimes these aren't divine imperatives. These aren't prescriptions or descriptions. And so we're not seeing them as divine commands, but we can see patterns of how God uses people and how God works in this world through Nehemiah's memoir or Nehemiah's story. And one of the ways that God works in people, as we saw in the first chapter of Nehemiah, is that God makes people aware of something that they were not aware of before, right? For example, like uh, if you were moved by the Uvalde shooting or the Buffalo shooting um, recently, and you've never really thought about mass shootings, and then you all of a sudden start to want to know more about it and you inquire about it, you can see the data and the statistics, and it is amazing. Like, I, 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 we'll talk about this later, but I did some research and I did some reading this week, and the statistics are staggering, right? And so one of the things that the way that God moves is we become aware of an issue or something, and then God moves us uh, viscerally and sometimes passionately and strongly in our hearts where something in us connects with the issue, and then we then act on. That's what happens to Nehemiah. He hears that the walls of Jerusalem are torn down and that his gates have been destroyed by fire from one of the people returning from Jerusalem. Immediately, Nehemiah weeps. He is emotionally connected to this event. He is compassionate. He moves in empathy. And then he takes action. And the first thing he does is fast and pray, which I think is the most important in some ways of how we can respond to a situation. So we see this classical movement of awareness, empathy or compassion and action, right? And then we see that Nehemiah, what he does in his prayers is that he aligns his interpretation of what is happening with God's story, okay? I, I can't tell you how important this is going to be in your life. Like, you may not have thought of this before, but right now, if you were to go on the website and Google the Google like the issue of mass shooting, right? You have all the shooting at Rob Elementary School. If you Google that, you're going to hear at least three, four, five different narratives about what is happening in America, right? You'll hear stories of how we need more gun control, we need more psychiatric help, and then you'll also hear about it's not really about gun control; it's about really hardening the schools. It's about, you know, there are other narratives that are competing. And it's important as Christians. One of the things that we do as a Christian is we interpret what is happening in our life and in the world through a lens. And that lens, I plead with you, 
should be the redemptive story of God, right? That is what living in faith is. It's really aligning our interpretation of what is happening in the world with what God is doing as revealed in scriptures, okay? So that's what Nehemiah does. He looks at the situation and says, it's not because God is not powerful, and it's not because God doesn't care. It's not these other gods are more powerful than our God, or it's not that God has abandoned his people. It's because Israel has sinned. And God told Moses in Deuteronomy that if my people sin, I will scatter them. But if they repent, I will gather them back. So Nehemiah in his prayer shows that he understands God. He sees God in what is happening. And by seeing God in what is happening, he aligns his sense of calling with that story. Okay? To align our life story with God's redemptive story is so, so important. Because it will be the foundation and it will give you a sense of purpose when you become weary in this world. Because, you know, having a good career isn't the driving story. Like achieving success at work, as good as it might be for a season, it won't sustain you throughout your life in terms of bringing you a sense of satisfaction for your life. Having healthy relationships may be a good thing, but it's not the primary story. The primary story is that God loves this world and this world is broken. And through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, God is redeeming this world now through his people, through the power of the Spirit. I mean, that's the story that we're part of. And we just got to align our lives with that story as much as we can. And we see Nehemiah doing that. And the last thing, last week, uh, two weeks ago, we looked is, you know, one of the ways we do that is we see what God has done in our life. We, I talked about how Nehemiah could not tell his stories without the fact that he was a cupbearer to the king. And I love that. And I wanted to challenge you to say, what are two or three things about your life that you couldn't tell your life story about who you are without mentioning it, right? And for me, like one of those one was, I'm an immigrant. I'm an immigrant. Now, I came to America when I was seven years old. And as an immigrant, my life in America was shaped a particular way. I grew up in an elementary school where there was only two Asians. And they were predominantly white. Right? So that, that shaped who I am. And so when I tell my story, that's part of uh, who I am that I, can't, I don't leave out. But here's the thing. If you see God in that part, that if I see God in somehow moving our family across the ocean to the States, then it's, I, I'm much more appreciative I'm much more sensitive to see that it's not just randomness. It's not just by chance, but there's a sovereign design and a purpose in all that is happening in my life. And that's what Nehemiah does. He sees his role as the cupbearer to being strategically placed for him to do something about rebuilding the wall. And then we talked about some practical things. That Nehemiah, having faith doesn't mean you're not afraid. Like knowing this is of God doesn't mean that we're so not afraid of things happening to us. And then we saw that when you pray for specific things, it's easier to see God's hand in it. Like, we're not begging God to do something he doesn't want to do. Prayer is not wrestling with God. Prayer is not like my kids when they were little begging me to take them to Chuck E. Cheese because uh, I didn't want to take them or something. I have nothing against Chuck E. Cheese. But, you know, if I, you know in the kid's mind, dad's tired, he doesn't want to go. So we got to change his mind. I got to change my dad's mind about letting me gummy 
bears for breakfast or something. Like, it's not, it's not this mindset. we got to change God's mind about doing something. It's really aligning ourselves what God is already doing. And when we pray that way, when God does answer our prayers, we can say like Nehemiah says, God's good hand was upon me, right? If you don't ever pray and see God's movement in your life, when he actually does move, it's hard to notice it. It really is. If you're dependent on yourself for all that you do, all the decision-making comes from your own wisdom and your own strength, then when things work out or don't work out, it's all about you. You can't, it's hard to see God. But when you're always praying and seeking God's will, when you're always seeking God's direction, when you're seeking God's provision for your life, then when it does provide, you can see his hand. You know, when I, was, when I first got married, I, I married young, or what is considered young in Southern California. In other parts of the U.S., I was probably an old guy by the time I got married. But I was 23 when I got married. My wife was 22, just turning 23. And a month after we got married, uh, got, uh, she got pregnant. Okay? It wasn't unplanned. I wanted to finish my seminary and so forth. But, you know, at the time, I was making, like, a part-time Chandosa was like an intern at church money. That's all. That's the, that's the extent of my income, right? I'm like, oh, you know, how are we going to make this? And so we pray. We pray, God help us, God help us, God help us. And we apply for these like funds at the hospital, these like um, uh, these funds they have for, for you know, low income um, couples and stuff. And we got some of them and all this happened. And, but, but we were praying like, God, meet our needs, give us a Sarah daily bread. And then something wonderful happened. Like, um, I, I got this job at Fuller thinking that it would give me health insurance, only to realize that working 30 hours did nothing for me. Like, they gave me no benefits. And so uh, I was looking for another job, and my supervisor saw that, and she's like, oh, are you, um, you need a full-time job? So she gave me, she made my job into a full-time job, and then health benefits came to it. And here's the thing, retroactively, it covered all the money payments that we had made into our pregnancy cost. And that amount was exactly my tuition cost for my next quarter, right? So, but the, here's the thing. We can say like, oh, that's so lucky that I did. But if you're praying and seeking God's provision in your life and you're seeking it, it's more easily identifiable as God's provision and God's hand in your life than it is if you're not praying, right? So that's Nehemiah up to chapter 2. All right. A little longer than I anticipated on the summary, but it's okay. It's always good to get refreshed. Now, there's only two, there are two things about today's passage that I want to highlight. In today's passage, Nehemiah is making, he finally arrives in Jerusalem. So I want you to kind of get the timeline in fact. So Nehemiah hears the news. It's another probably, at the least, four months before he approaches the king. And it's probably another somewhere between four, to, four months to a year before he actually arrives in Jerusalem. Because the journey itself will probably take about couple months, few months at the least. It's about 800 miles distance travel. And it, it looks like from, from the earlier verses that Nehemiah was getting supplies on his way. So it was probably a while before Nehemiah gets here. So just remember this. The wall was built in, and once again, not a spoiler alert. You can read ahead. I'm not ruining a uh, you know, big wall moment, reveal moment here. But the wall was completed in, do you know how many days? 52 days, okay? But to start the wall, it took almost probably like a year or over a year, 
Okay, well, that's all the foundational work that was being done. So in today's passage, Nehemiah finally gets to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem, and he does something that's what I want to say external and internal. His final preparation, he does one that is what I would say external preparation, and he does one final what I would say is internal preparation, okay? The external preparation is like any good leader, he goes and examines, or as ESV translates it, investigates the walls himself, okay? This is just shrewd leadership. This is just smart leadership. When, when you experience something firsthand, it creates empathy. It creates uh, credibility with the people. It creates a sense of firsthand experience and awareness of what is actually happening. So remember, Nehemiah hears secondhand that the walls have been destroyed, right? And the gates have been destroyed by fire. So now he goes to Jerusalem. The first thing he does is he doesn't gather the people and just say, hey, we need to rebuild. He actually goes and sees the damage, sees the extent of what has happened in Jerusalem. It makes a world of difference in credibility for a leader to be aware of the actual situation, right? That's why when, when a catastrophe happens in the U.S., Hurricane Katrina or or a tornado, or even Uvalde, the shooting, what happens? You see the leaders all kind of marching there. And in part, it's politics. It's, it's you know, you got to appear like you're caring and you're concerned and they're there. And I don't want to besmirch their um, motives. But part of it is also is that if you're there, you see things firsthand and things are different. When you see a war-torn area from TV and you hear about it is one thing. When you go experience a war-torn area, it's altogether different. I remember the L.A. riots in 1992. Do you guys remember that? Some of you may be young. But in 1992, if you watched the L.A. riots from TV, it looked like whatever. My, wife was, my wife's family was doing a sewing contracting at the time. And I remember she was in downtown. It was 8th and Main. And she was locked in. There were all these fires going around, and she couldn't get out. We were engaged at the time. She, we, we weren't married yet. And, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I was like, were we dating? Were we engaged yet? I don't remember. But anyways, I just remember feeling just horrified. And you could see the fire, and you could see the, like, the people trying to protect the stores and, and the rioters or the loot, I mean, just even the violence in the beginning, you can see that. But when you're there in person, it's altogether different. Like when she described what's happening, she's seeing it's different. From what people told me, if you go to Ukraine and you actually go to a worn, torn area, it like when Kiev was being attacked or, or Dunball, it just, it's, when you're there and see the children and you see the bodies, it's a different experience. And that's why I think it's so important that the first thing Nehemiah does is he goes and investigates the walls himself. Um, Old Testament scholar uh, Mark Thronvite, whose commentary I, I, I'm reading right now, um, I love this, what he says about Nehemiah's leadership. He says, a prematurely formulated plan that would aggravate the already smoldering animosity of Jerusalem's neighbors stood little chance of winning the approval of the inhabitants. Not only must he be able to offer a clear and definite proposal, he must also convince them that he understood 
the complexities of the situation. Nehemiah has to win the people, and by going and investigating and knowing firsthand, he knows how much rubble, he sees the damages on the walls, he sees the gates burned down, he wins their, he wins their, um, he wins credibility from the people, knowing that he knows firsthand, it's not just secondhand experience. What does that mean for us? For us, it means that we always ought to be careful before offering our expertise and trying to solve a problem without getting ourselves involved somewhat. It's so easy to be a uh, couch quarterback, Monday, Monday morning quarterback, where you just are sitting there from a distance saying, well, you know, th those people should have done that, or to solve this issue, they should do this. And that's why I think for me, like short-term missions, I, and um, I'm not the biggest fan of the term short-term missions. Again, just, just being transparent. Not a big fan of the terminology. Not a big fan of the sort of the premise behind it as kind of we're going to go and really for a short period like be these people that are going to help you. But I think short-term missions, if used effectively, can be a great way to get first-hand experience and first-hand knowledge and build relationships on the ground with the people who you want to partner with, right? Because God's already doing something there. God doesn't need us from America to be the saviors, okay, number one. God is already at work around the world. It's just we go there and we see firsthand like Nehemiah and we experience firsthand what God is doing and then we say, how can we partner with God and what God is doing, right? And in that sense, I think short-term mission trips are wonderful opportunities. So there's the external, but then there's also the internal. The internal is that, and I want you to look at verse 12. This is so important to understand this. The internal thing that uh, Nehemiah, Nehemiah does is he says, then I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Meaning that Nehemiah was internally girding himself to understand his motives and reasons for why he was doing what he was doing, and it was God. And this is so, so important. Because if you don't ultimately see God in what you are doing, it is so easy for our conviction, convictions to fall apart, especially in the midst of opposition. Because look at verse 19. What is the first opposition that Nehemiah faces? It comes from Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem. And what is it that they say as their first line of attack? They say, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? They are questioning his motives. They're questioning his motives, and, and I'll, I'll just cite the reference. You, don't, you can look it up, and I'll just read you a little bit. They're citing the reference because in the past, this has worked. And if you look at Ezra chapter 411, um, so this is actually, the text is up there, and it says, to Artaxerxes the king. You remember the name Artaxerxes? Right? Familiar name, right? So this is a letter written to Artaxerxes by the enemies of the Israelites. It says, to Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came from you to have gone to Jerusalem, they are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations 
Now be known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, therefore we send and inform the king in order that such may, search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. This letter was sent to the king, and it worked. It worked. The king ordered the rebuilding of the wall to be stopped. So when Nehemiah comes to rebuild the wall, the enemies of Nehemiah are drawing the same card. We're going to write to the king and let him know, are you doing this because you're rebelling? And in such moment, what sustains Nehemiah is verse 12. Is what God had put into my heart to do for the welfare of Jerusalem. If, you're, if our church is going to do something, if our church is going to revive its, you know, and change and be, be a ministry that's going to be a blessing to people, and we may face some obstacles, we may face some challenges, if we don't believe in our hearts that this is what God has put in our hearts to do, then we may doubt. We may get wary. We may get tired out by the difficulties of the task. But Nehemiah knew it was God. And how did Nehemiah know it was God? Because God told him through the angels, right? And in that vision, he said, Nehemiah, Nehemiah, I'm sending you to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, right? No. And I, I told you this, I will often do this. He didn't do that. God didn't send Nehemiah a vision. God didn't send an angel. How did God convince Nehemiah this was God? Through the word of God. Nehemiah was familiar with the story of God and who God was. Now, I'm not saying God can't speak supernaturally to us, but what is really the foundation of building a conviction that God is at work is knowing who God is and knowing his story. And Nehemiah knows that God cares for his people. So therefore, he says, God put it on my heart for the welfare of Jerusalem. Dear friends, our hearts are deceitful. We can lose our ways. We may question why we're doing what we're doing. But know this, one of the ways that we discern if God is in this is to say, am I doing this for the welfare of others? Am I doing this because I understand God's story of redemption and want to be part of it? Am I doing this because God is the God of justice and mercy and compassion? Like God cares for the marginalized, right? When we know who God is and his story, it gives us confidence to know that some of the things that we are pursuing is from God. That's what Nehemiah does. So this is the final thing. External, he gets firsthand experience, awareness of what is happening. Internally, he girds himself by recognizing that what he's about to embark on is given to him by God. Okay? Not through visions, not through angels, but through his understanding of God's character, God's love for his people, and God's redemptive story. And I pray. Look, I, I, I hope the best for THMCEM, 
I hope for a bright future. But we're not going to move forward unless we see our future tied in with what God is doing, right? And I, I pray that we will, we will pray for that and we will see that.